Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 28 of The Keith Law Show. I will be speaking today to Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson, authors of the new book, Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back. First, a couple of administrative notes. I am recording this on the Major League Baseball trade deadline, which has turned out to be extremely active so far. This is a good thing. I do have a post up for subscribers to The Athletic talking about the three major trades that the Padres have made so far. I have another post in progress, not currently filed or published, but it will be soon. Uh, maybe by the time this show is up, actually, it should be up, where I'm going to talk about a bunch of the other trades that we've seen so far. We're seeing a lot of prospects change hands, and I am going to break down each of those trades. As long as there's a prospect involved and named who I can talk about, I will provide you with some kind of analysis about the trade as a whole. Also, just a reminder that my own book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is also out. It has been out since April. Thank you so much to those of you who have already purchased it and uh, continue to send me really nice feedback about it on social media. We'll get to my conversation with Jessica Luther and Kavita Davidson in just a moment, but first a word from one of our sponsors. Well, today I have two guests, which I think is actually the first time I've done this since I started this podcast. So we'll see if I'm able to handle this. This is a 100% increase in my number of guests. That might be beyond my capabilities. But I wanted to have both these women on because I just read and really enjoyed uh, their new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. The authors are Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson. This is Jessica's second book, actually. She wrote Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, which came out in 2016. She is also a freelance writer and co-hosts her own podcast, Burn It All Down. Kavitha works with me here at The Athletic and is the uh, host and editorial director for our podcast, The Lead. First of all, congratulations to both of you. As we speak, we are just hours away from your official release date, which is super exciting. Are you uh, both getting slammed with media requests? I hope the answer is yes. Yes. And we have a very lovely publicist. Shout out to Joel at UT Press, who's been (laughs) managing a lot of that for us. And so, yes. Yeah, and I actually got um, I got the the author copies of the books today. I was able to open that box. So it's been a very exciting day. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I love that. That's a great I have had that feeling myself. It's very exciting. And it's a good, like, I have a love hate relationship with social media. But that's when it's like, this is why Instagram exists. So I can yeah. take a picture of my book and send it to people <laughs> and also send it to my mom and dad. So. Obviously. Um, so it feels like this book is arriving at just the right time, not that you could have foreseen this, but with players taking active stances on many of the major issues of social justice that you address directly or indirectly in the book. And particularly, you guys spend, spend a lot of time, as you should, talking about women's sports, and the WNBA has really been leading the way in this activist period over the last couple of weeks. Do you see this sticking around? And particularly, do you think this will herald some sort of change like you're calling for in the book in the way that fans relate to sports, whether the teams or the players of which they're fans? I will say I just saw, and Kavitha can speak to this too, uh, Nielsen just did a poll that came out like today showing that fans, in fact, like it when athletes speak up and their leagues and their owners and their coaches and all the people around them support them. So... It does feel like we have, I mean, what we're going through is unprecedented in so many ways, and it does feel like we're not going to go back from here. I do wonder, whenever we reach the other side of this, whatever that looks like, and we return to some version of normal, what athlete activism will look like then. But for now, I I think we're in it. 
and I find it very exciting for how much cynicism I have in general about so much. It was, I felt hope last week when the Bucks didn't come out of the locker room and everything that followed after that. Yeah, I mean, that I hadn't actually seen that Nielsen poll, but that's really fascinating. And we're having a lot of conversations about whether, particularly in the NBA, um, athlete activism is a cause, one of the causes for a dip in their ratings. So it's nice to start to have actual data to speak to that instead of people opining. Um, But, you know, I come from a sports business background, so I will always take the position that whether or not it's um, it's a, a genuine act by companies when companies are saying that it is a good business decision to support social movements, I think that that's just the sign that there's no going back from that, right? I mean, we we had seen the seeds of this, Keith, you mentioned the WNBA, which has been at the forefront of this for quite literally years. Um, but we'd seen the, seed, seed, the seeds of this for four or five years now. And when you have companies like Nike saying that Black Lives Matter, when you have companies like FedEx telling a football team that they have to change their name, I don't think there's actually a reverse course from that. There's always a slight course correct from you know the other side of people, but I just can't imagine it being a complete reversal. Do you think it's funny you mentioned that the FedEx thing with the NFL team that now currently has no name? Would you say that the Cleveland baseball team should have changed its name a long time ago or a really long time ago? <laughs> as soon as Native activists, which was many decades ago, told them yep. that it was harmful, and they have been at the opening day game for what, like 40 something years telling them Mm -hmm. that this is wrong. So yeah, a really long time ago is probably more accurate. A really long time ago. I mean, Keith, nobody needs to tell you how difficult it was just to change Chief Wahoo, right? If you couldn't convince people that that image was wrong and offensive, then I think it's it's a bigger ask to convince those same people that the name of that team is also wrong and offensive. But you could say the same thing with the Kansas City football team. And I'll also say I was in Miami for the Super Bowl in February, which seems like it was 17 years ago. Um, <laughs> but the and I was so happy for that team. But hearing them do the chant down the streets of South Beach, you know, it, you do you do have to kind of ask the question of when this will spread. One more question just on the athlete activism point before I talk about some of the other great topics in your book. The anthem has been such a center of a lot of this, and particularly of the, let's call it a controversy, although I think it's a manufactured one. Do you think that the players taking stances during the anthem, or or even God Bless America, which I've long opposed playing those at stadiums, it's performative patriotism, I'm here for a sports ball game, not for a national pep rally, but do you think those become a permanent feature of players trying to protest some way through the anthem? Or does that, am I too hopeful to say maybe that sort of falls to the wayside because we're talking about bigger issues of real athlete activism as opposed to just a, a, somebody kneeling or standing hmm. during the song? I do wonder as if we get more collective action, like, you know, the the NBA tried and it's hard to do that kind of collective organizing the WNBA, as Kavitha said, have been doing it for years. So they're much um, more, what's the word I want? They're very good at moving very quickly as a group. And we're not seeing that quite yet in other professional sports. But if and when that happens, I could see maybe the anthem protests falling off in some way if there's other action that they're doing collectively. But it is one reason that people do it is it works. It is, get right. <laughs> you know, like it really does get people to respond uh, very quickly and 
whether that's positive or negative. So hi, yeah, I don't know. It's so hard, right? Like what did, what's going to be going on in a month and three months? It's it's feels <laughs> like that's a ridiculous thing to try to even put your finger on at this point. Well, these athletes have been so creative in the way that they've demonstrated, right? I mean, obviously, it's not just about taking a knee anymore. And I think that depending on who you ask, taking a knee during the anthem in at this point in 2020 isn't as radical an act, obviously, as it once was, even though it does inspire this incredibly heated debate. So um, I don't know if it would necessarily be a bad thing if that falls by the wayside, because I think if it does, it just means that it's being supplanted by even more drastic and radical demonstrations. Now we'll take a quick break to hear about one of The Athletic's newest shows. This is The Athletic Football Show. I think every football season is a big challenge in one way or another. Introducing The Athletic Football Show, an all-new podcast with me, Robert Mays, and a team of world-class NFL writers and analysts. We'll feature expert guests and our plugged-in beat writers from around the league. What Patrick Mahomes did in the last nine minutes is just absurd. You can subscribe now to The Athletic Football Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And stay with us all season long as The Athletic brings you what matters most in today's NFL. I'm speaking with Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson, co-authors of the brand new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Sports Fan. Let's turn to another topic you talk about quite a bit in the book and something I've been kind of passionate about, uh, at least when it affects baseball, when it comes up with baseball players, and that's uh, cases of domestic violence, sexual assault, or harassment. You talk a bit about the the complexity of the relationship when you're a fan of a team or even of a specific player who is accused of or commits one of these uh, one of these crimes, what would you like to see the entities involved, whether it's the team level, the league level, even unions do differently than they're doing now when we have one of these cases where a player is, uh, let's just say it starts with the accusation, which we know statistically most accusations of domestic violence are actually true. I think we're starting, we started to see some of the things that we would like to shift in the actions that are taken, but then it just stalled. <laughs> <laughs> I guess people got distracted. I don't know. Um, the biggest thing I think is always not waiting for um, police or local law enforcement to act on these things. I think that, you know, we've already had the conversation in Major League Baseball or in the NFL about how it's up to these leagues to enforce their own kind of standards of personal conduct. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons why in the criminal justice system, um, there might not be an official arrest or a charge. And that doesn't mean that something didn't happen. Um, I think, you know, we write about Aroldis Chapman in that in that particular chapter, which is personally, you know, the, one of the cases that this issue has been brought up for me. I'm a Yankees fan. And the way that the Yankees acquired Aroldis Chapman to begin with was very cheaply at the trade deadline because of this accusation that he had. And, that just doesn't sit well with me. I don't know how I don't know how I can prescribe to a team that your moral authority should supersede your um, commitment to fielding a really good team. But the Red Sox passed on him, the Dodgers passed on him, and he fell to a team that was willing to take him. And, um, you know, I think that we we've got to acknowledge that part of that reality. Yeah, so other teams had a moral or ethical position mm -hmm. that was different than the Yankees, right? So we know that that's possible. I always think, I mean, this is such a hard issue. We're not good at it in general in our society. The reason that law, like law enforcement's not good at this, when we talk about it in, you know, on the college level, universities, NCAA, 
they're bad at it. Like one of the things I always say is that there's no good system to report into when you've been harmed. And but on some I guess what I want is some kind of I want accountability. And I know that that's not an easy thing. That's a huge thing to be asking for. But one thing that's really difficult with sport in particular is that we cheer for these people. So it's like one thing for them to be laborers and workers and to go out and do a job, but it is not divorced from the fact that they are then going to be cheered by fans and that there's this real, like people cheer for them because they did this bad thing. And I just find that, I don't know what I want sports to do about that, but we don't even really get that acknowledgement from teams. They really try to act like that's not part of what is a problem here. And so on some level, I just want them to tell the truth. Like a lot of the time, I just want them to say, look, we're just we're taking this guy. He's cheap. but He can throw a hell of a ball. And we're we're making the cynical decision. And hopefully he helps us win the games because we're we're willing to do this. You know, like I can't imagine they would ever actually do the PR that way. But there's a part of me that wishes we could just be honest about what's actually happening here. Yeah, stop trying to give us a redemption narrative, you know, stop yeah, trying to, God. you know, tell us he's, yeah. he's he knows he does something wrong, or, you know, he's a completely changed human being. And particularly in the case of Aroldis Chapman, we gave him like four different press conferences to try and prove that and he just did it. Um, but I will also say like, one of the complicating things here as well is that Jessica and I obviously, if you read the book also really believe in labor rights. So I do think that these unions should be protecting these players who are accused of things as strong as they are, but then it's up to the leagues not to kind of, it's up to the leagues to push back on that. And I do think talking about redemption, I just want to say like sports media is complicit 100%. And like, (laughs) as soon as someone is accused, it's like, they immediately want to write the redemption narrative. Like they don't have, there's no in between space there. It's getting better. I mean, I started writing about this topic seriously in 2013. So we're seven years in. And it's very different landscape in sports media around this. But that would help is to not feel like that has to be the go to narrative around someone who's been accused of harming someone else. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that. And and like you just hear it in all forms. So, you know, as far as journalism, but also when you tune into a game, like they don't know how else to talk about these people. And we need to do work around that. Well, you bring up Ray Rice, who he forgive me if I'm overstating this. Tell me if I'm overstating this, but like he earned it. He went and did at least some of the things that you would want someone who in his case there was never any doubt what had happened. He went out and you know, said many of the right things and did many of the right things, whereas a lot of the other players you talk about never did that. Aroldis Chapman has never done that. And the Cubs were fully aware, and I assume the Yankees were too, exactly what kind of person they were getting and probably knew pretty well he was never going to change. So we have actual examples of redemption. It is one, it's perplexing to me why we why media keep reaching for that as opposed to just saying, hey, he's a bad guy who throws hard. Like that's... That's what a lot of these people are, but also that many of these teams are being disingenuous, maybe even with themselves, because they know full well what they're acquiring. And that's why it's that much more confusing when they come out and, and often I, I know or strongly suspect that they're just lying to us. Well, we know he's he's past this. That's not really reflective of who he is. 
Yeah, you kind of know that's exactly who he is because, of course, you did your homework before acquiring the player. You don't want to get taken by surprise like the Mariners were back, way back when, when they traded for Josh Lewecki and claimed they didn't know he had one of these on his record. And we're actually going through this in a very messy and public way with LSU and, and Darius Juice and, and everything that's going on there. I'm glad that you bring up Ray Rice, though, because I think that one of the things that happens whenever someone like Jessica or I write about violence against women or gendered violence in sports People automatically want to accuse us of not believing in second chances or not believing that it's capable, yep. that it's possible for an athlete to redeem themselves. And Ray Rice is absolutely an example of someone who did that, who, as you mentioned, did the work and, and I think truly did try to rehabilitate himself and try to improve his relationship with his wife and go to therapy and anger management and all of those things. And not just in a way that, you know, when anger management is court ordered and you just go to a couple of classes, he really did seem like he, he put so much effort into that, but he was also at the tail end of his career. So there was no benefit to another football team for giving him that benefit of the doubt, right? Um, but it is possible. It shows that it, that it's absolutely possible. And, um, I think if more leagues took this as seriously and if, if a player who was in the middle or the prime of his career took it as seriously as I think Ray Rice did, we would have a different conversation. You mentioned in the book, too, one of the reasons that women either women who are victims either don't report in the first place or maybe don't follow through. This was the case of Jose Reyes's wife, where she then just refused to co- cooperate with police is fear of either fear of retribution or fear of loss of income. Um, and I, I run into that a lot myself when I talk about these issues. And every time a team has signed or traded for a player who's committed an act of domestic violence, I've been pretty critical because I think they're often just overlooking the consequences of what they're doing or the message that it might send to fans, especially to women fans, but really to all fans. And a response I've gotten, even from some people in the industry, but especially from fans is, well, are you saying he should never work again? And that one, that's an extremely lazy and not useful response, but it does get at the question of it's may actually be harmful for the victims. If we're simply saying these men can, no longer pursue their livelihood. And I do struggle a little bit with that, even though I come down on the fact that what you did was terrible enough that you should at least be removed from the sport for a long time. Do either of you have thoughts on sort of that split of of sort of doing the right, what we think of as the right thing versus potential harm of taking away the the person's, the, the athlete's livelihood, which may adversely affect the victim or victims? Yeah, I think this is one of the most complicated parts of all of this. And I want to give a shout out to Diana Moskovitz, Back in the dead spend mm-hmm. days, she wrote a brilliant I piece that about piece. zero tolerance policies and the damage that they can actually do to the people they're supposed to be helping, which we see this in all kinds of ways. There are a lot of laws that arrest both people. If you call it in a domestic violence incident, they will arrest the person who called as much as the person who uh, did the harm. And so this, <laughs> we see people trying to fix this in ways that actually make everything worse. And I... I think one of the struggles around this issue is that so much of it is individualized to the the case and what the person harmed actually needs. But we don't have any good way. Like we have everything's been so bad for so long that most people who are harmed don't trust anyone to help them and they don't want to tell anyone in power who could maybe help them what's actually going on because that can be very dangerous in the end because a lot of the time those people don't come through for them and they're still left in a really harmful situation. So yeah, on some level, I wish that there was a way that every individual case could be 
treated individually so that the victim can get whatever resources and help that they actually need in order to do whatever it is they want to do, because even that's complicated. Do they stay? Do they go? How do you figure that out? Um, So much of this is you have to not have a lot of judgment. And we have so much judgment (laughs) about all these people. Um, So I don't have a good answer for you. Zero tolerance policies don't work. They're often very harmful. And what the victim needs and wants should be at the forefront. Can we ever trust institutions to do that work? I honestly don't know. And we don't live in a society that does that work. So it's not like they're falling back on a social safety net in some way that will help them. So I wish I had a good answer for you on this one. I actually find this to be one of the hardest questions to answer about this particular topic. Well, and one of the reasons it's such a difficult question to answer in the context of sports is because like Jessica said, we don't have these answers in the in broader society. <laughs> we haven't figured this out at all. And so much of what we write about in the book it uses sports as the lens, but these are just problems that exist. They're bigger than these games that we love or these athletes and these teams that we love. Um, zero tolerance policies don't work. We've heard from every domestic violence advocate that um, pre- preventative measures are way more effective than punitive measures. But what does that look like in the context of sports? I think that the difficulty is that some preventative measures start with previous cases having been punitive, if that makes sense. You know, there being a deterrent from a player committing systemic acts of violence um, f- because they've seen previous players actually be punished for it, that, you know, that could be a deterrent in some way. But I think what we've what we've actually seen be the most effective are the leagues that have expanded mental health services, that have expanded family family planning services, um, let alone family therapy services. Um, now whether players are going to take advantage of those things that are available to them is a whole other question, but at least making them available is a step in the right direction and a step away from just, you know, from just throwing a huge suspension at a player and hoping that he's not going to do it again. One of the things I've noticed, and this is less myself tweeting, but maybe a lot of other people tweeting, Richard Deitch, for example, who works with us at The Athletic, if he tweets about women's sports, (laughs) there will inevitably be multiple replies, generally from users whose avatars are themselves behind the wheel of a car with bad sunglasses on, who'll say some variation of nobody cares about women's sports. Obviously, that's not really true. And you guys talk a lot about that in the book. What's sort of your general response to people who still make that claim in 2020 now that we have a fair bit of data that says actually a lot of people care about women's sports? I'm going to let Jessica jump in and and answer the first part of this question. But I just wanted to point out that the original chapter title for our WNBA chapter was something along the lines of how to watch women's basketball when everyone else tells you you're the only one. Like Nobody cares. (laughs) Literally, that is exactly that is the stock response whenever you say anything innocuous about women's sports. I think it's wild that so many people spend so much of their time telling us over and over again how much they don't care about this one thing. (laughs) And you're like, wow, you seem to care (laughs) so much about how much I care about it or how little everyone else does. On some level, I think you're never going to get everyone. And the WNBA in particular, I think is probably the they get the worst of it. And that's a lot of deep misogyny there, but it's also racism and it's also homophobia. They have this kind of trifecta Mm -hmm. that (laughs) makes them this target. But like I have this shirt, Marina Mabry, who um, I think she's now a Dallas Wings. She has a shirt where it's a basketball court and across it, it says, this is my kitchen. And I just like Ah. love that because you always are getting the 
you know, go back to the kitchen and make me a sandwich if you mentioned that you love women's sports. But the truth is that lots of people love women's sports. And for a really long time, it was hard to find them. And so one of the things that's changed over the last few years is not only are we seeing better media coverage, you can find some of it on television, but because of social media, you can actually find other people who love it too. And so I I have really curated my social media feed so that I get so much information about women's sports that I often actually forget that not everyone has that experience, uh, <laughs> that it does take work still. And I we write about this in the book that like it takes work still to be a women's sports fan. Um, but yeah, the people who are just going to never be- people who are never going to believe you no matter how many stats you have about this. I mean, they have misogyny that they need to work out just in general in their life. And so <laughs> I guess you just got to let that go at cer- a certain point because it's clear that people watch women's sports. Like, I am I feel like we should just maybe stop arguing the point and just take it as a fact. We just have data that, like, you know, right. we can just, like, literally point to numbers um, to to demonstrate that. It is always amazing to me when you have the exact, the same dudes um, jumping in whenever you tweet about this to say that. It's exactly like, and all three of us I know have experienced this, when you have the same commenter or reader at whichever media outlet you're writing for at the time, who always leads the comment with, I hate your writing, but you have a Google alert set up for me, obviously, because you you, you (laughs) said you leave a comment on every single article I've ever written. Yeah, yeah, I think it has something to do with the fact that, I mean, Jessica's absolutely right. It's misogyny, racism, and homophobia, all wrapped up into one, particularly when you're talking about the WNBA. But I think that it also just has to do with this, this idea that a lot of male sports fans like to see themselves in the players that they're watching. And that's obviously something that they don't think they can do when women are playing, even though it is. That's something that they're taught that they can't do, though. If you, you know, there's so many, I'm always incredibly encouraged just by the the younger generations just in general of like their capacity to lift our our country from the depths that it's in now but um i i'm always really encouraged when i see people taking their not only their little girls but their little boys to women's basketball games and they're wearing you know they're wearing the jerseys of their favorite players. I'm sure Sabrina Ionescu sold some little boy jerseys, right? Um, when she was drafted. And, and that's just because they haven't been taught from an incredibly young age that that, um, that that goes against their own gender identities or their own identities as sports fans and maybe as athletes. So I, I see that changing, but it really is still, I mean, it really is just incredible how automatic that reaction is whenever there's anything even remotely related to women's sports on. But and and Jessica said this on another interview that we were on. It's so ingrained and it's so bad that even when Hall of Fame men NBA players are saying we love watching the WNBA, we find so much value out of these women athletes that their fans are even pushing back against them. So I think that just demonstrates how how bad that part of it is. I should mention too, this is anecdotal, obviously, but after the women, US women's team won the World Cup last year, my partner, my daughter, and I went to see them on their little victory lap tour they did. They played at the link here in uh, Philly. Um, and it was the first professional women's sporting event I'd actually ever been to. I don't go to sporting events except for baseball anymore because any, usually if I'm at a sports ball event, it's work, right? I feel like I'm at work. I have lost that sort of separation. This was a blast, but I was particularly thrilled to see how many kids 
of all genders were wearing gear. So at some point, you know what I mean? Obviously, you know, a couple of us are parents, right? You see with your kids, they don't think that much about the separation unless we push it on them. This is women's sport. This is men's sport. It comes up a lot, obviously, in baseball because at a very young age, we split them. If you're a boy, you play baseball. If you're a girl, you can't play baseball. That's for the boys. So you must go play this other sport of softball. But there, many kids under, you know, appeared to be under the age of 10 of all genders were wearing the jerseys with the names of the women who were on the field. And I mean, that felt to me, again, it's just anecdotal, but it felt very much like progress. Like I cannot, I'm 47. I cannot imagine that happening in my childhood. It just wouldn't have existed. The avenues wouldn't have existed. And there was so much, so many, uh, uh, so much gender separation, the way that we talked about players, talked about leagues that just couldn't have happened. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking about my own childhood incorrectly, but I think this looked like progress. I think that's absolutely a huge part of it. And there's a couple of of aspects to it. One is just the sheer like marketing dollars, right? You are making revenue from selling those jerseys that's going to go back into these women's sports, that's going to go to players and player development, and that's going to continue the cycle of improving the sports and, and, and improving their public profile, all of that. But yes, maybe slightly anecdotally, but absolutely culturally, it just makes it more acceptable is not even the word mainstream just like it's not even it's not even a thing that we should think about as being different it's just how things should have always been because there have always been athletic women um you know so i it's absolutely a huge part of it but even then even with you know 20 years of successful women's national soccer teams Nike still doesn't make enough jerseys. It's still a really frustrating thing. There, I have plenty of male friends and, and myself actually, um, who couldn't find a, a women's national team jersey with the fourth star on it in their size. You know, this is absolutely a thing that, um, that will continue to fight. And that just comes from the people at the top making the decisions for the apparel companies, underestimating how much of a demand there actually is here and leaving money on the table as a result. Uh, last question I wanted to ask you guys, and you touched on this a little bit of sort of the latent homophobia that comes up when men especially respond negatively to talking about women's sports, is that we still haven't seen outside of women's sports, we haven't really seen active players in the major men's professional sports who are LGBT come out until after they're done playing. We had, As far as I know, we've had only one professional baseball player, and he was in the low minors, ended up retiring a little bit afterwards, David Denson. Otherwise, everyone's come out after they've retired. I, again, might be now I might be a little Pollyanna-ish, which is something nobody's ever said about me in my entire life. But I feel like if a, play, if a Major League Baseball player came out now, it would be a story, but it would kind of pass pretty quickly. I don't think there would be a lot of negative, not of negative reaction within the industry, there might be some from fans and it would be hard to be the first. I think that might be the biggest obstacle. It'd be very hard to be the first to come out maybe in any of these sports leagues. But again, I'm kind of hopeful. I think that if the player comes out, when in the near future, one, one of these players in one of these major men's leagues comes out, it, they'll probably see a lot of acceptance. I, I get the sense from your book that you might agree, but tell me if you think I'm I'm right or am I just being way too much of an optimistic about my fellow man? Well, in that chapter, we interviewed Wade Davis, who was one of these players who played, you know, professional football and then came out afterwards. And he uh, he's hopeful. He does think it, <laughs> in sort of the way that Kavitha was just talking about that the younger generation, they just are growing up in a totally different world than we grew up in. I certainly see this with my own son, who's 11, and just the way his own his friends talk about uh, sexuality and gender identity is just 
<laughs> beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, <laughs> and it's so refreshing. And so it's hard. Being a pioneer in any way is hard. There's still a ton of homophobia in this culture that we live in. I imagine there's probably homophobia that they hear from people that they work around. Um, those things are always like, how do you measure that? Um, how hard that would be? This is their job. Uh, and then all the public pressure that's going to come from that. Uh, but I do think it's just it feels like a matter of time at this point. And I do agree with you that we're not we would not see the same kind of um, terrible response we maybe have, would have just a decade ago. But who was the dude that just said the F word? Tom Brenneman. Yeah. Tom Brenneman. I mean, yeah, it's not like it's not there. Right. And so we do have to acknowledge that, like, it would be way easier, but that's not to say it's easy. And yeah. but I agree. I think Wade would probably agree with you, and I would take his take on this more even than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we'll I think it's a matter of time before we see a gay male player come out, um, an active player, that being, you know, the the major separator. But um even with the Brenneman thing, I mean, he gave the same kind of tired excuse about how, you know, he's a man of God and he only now was learning about how that word was a hateful invite. And yes, I mean, we're all, this is an audio, this is a podcast. You can't see all of us collectively rolling our eyes at that. <laughs> but five years ago, that, that apology would have just been accepted. He maybe would have been taken off the air for a couple of days and then we would have gone right back to his job. And, you know, they still, I believe, have yet to make a permanent decision on him. But I can't imagine that. Um, you know, it, that the he, fact that he apologized to the people who signed his paychecks before anyone yeah, else, yeah. it was him showing 100%. us that he understood that we are in a different right. place now. Like that, right. he tipped his hat to exactly what you're talking about, Kavita, <laughs> because going back to what you said before about corporations and that kind of outside public pressure, like he... He got it. He knew he knew exactly who he needed to apologize to in order to try and save his job. But I, I do. It's always hard to be the first. And I think and I hate that I have to think about it in these terms. But I think when we do see the first that pioneer, just taking the lessons that we've learned from when Michael Sam came out, for example, mm -hmm. I think when we do see that first gay male athlete come out he has to be really good, you know, like yeah. he can't be a fringe player. And that's so sad to have to say. Um, but I think he is like, he's just got to be unassailable on the field, essentially, and, and essential to his team. Um, and then he'll pave the way for for everyone else to follow. I do believe we end that chapter with Katie Barnes saying that one day we're going to look back and be like, what? There weren't gay NFL players? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean of course there have been, right? Yeah, right, right. of course there have been, but public, Out, right. yeah, yeah. Disclo right. publicly disclosed. And I do, I think that is kind of the feeling, but we still, it's going to be a bit, I think. My guests today have been Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson. They are the author of the brand new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Sports Fan, coming out on September 1st from the University of Texas Press. You can look for it everywhere fine books are sold, including bookshop.org. Jessica and Kavitha, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Keith. That's all for this week's show. One other event I'd like to let you know about. I am going to be interviewing or just hosting a live book event with Chuck Palahniuk 
on Friday, September 11th through Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's midtownscholar.com. Chuck Palahniuk's new book, The Invention of Sound, is, uh, I believe, about to come out. And if you purchase tickets to the event, you will receive a signed first edition copy of The Invention of Sound from Midtown Scholar, as well as a unique live stream link to join the event, which is on Friday, September 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can find a link to purchase the book and your ticket at midtownscholar.com. I hope to see many of you there. I actually have the book. I have not read it yet. I am on the clock. I need to finish one more book before I read the next book because I'm very weird and rigid about the order in which I read books. It has a lot to do with the order in which they come into the house. That's probably more information than you needed to know about me. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Wear your masks. Stay safe.